If you have your Bibles, I want you to go back to Psalm 67. Psalm 67 is where uh, we were right before we sang, and though the screen says Romans, and we will end up eventually in Romans, I want to start in Psalm 67. As I do, consider what uh, the following ideas, subjects have in common. Global warming, the recall election, L.A. Animal Shelters Adopt Them All campaign, California Health Department's My Turn campaign for vaccines, the March for Life, Relay for Life, Blackout Tuesday on Instagram, June 2nd, 2020, Children's Hunger Fund food drives, the BLM protest, the Republican Party. What do all of these things have in common? All of them, in one way or another, are causes that you can join. Movements that you can try to be a part of. All of them invite you to be part of something that's bigger than yourself, to link arms with others, and to be part of some movement that's either regional or national or even global. And there's a reason these movements are appealing. All of us want to be part of something that transcends ourselves. All of us want to feel like we're making a difference that's just beyond our own life. And all of us want to do that with other people. We want to find like-minded individuals that want to support and be about the same causes that we support and are about. And so you see this expressed in sports. Some of you have wondered, like, why are some people so into sports and they wear all the uniforms and know all the chants and everything? Well, people want to be part of some purpose that's bigger than themselves and connected with others. Maybe it explains why some people join the mafia. I don't know. Bigger than yourself, linked with others. But why do people uh, cheer for their sports teams, join the feminist movement, put up pride flags, or put out an American flag? They want to be part of some ideal that's bigger than themselves. It's why some of you get all geeked out at pep rallies, why you support your team's football or your school's football team on Friday nights, or why you take great pride in the restaurant that you work for. You want to be part of something bigger than just your own life. What's exciting, friends, is that there is no greater cause in the universe, no greater purpose that you could build your life around, uh, no greater movement than you could say, I'm going to use my time, resources, energy, and thoughts uh, than on the, the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no greater purpose you could build your life around. And what's so great is that the cause of Christ is the greatest cause in the universe. It's not just a localized thing. It's a global ideal. And so as we read, we see it here, Psalm 67, verse 2. It said that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Verse 7, God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear Him. Another short psalm, Psalm 117, says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud Him, all peoples. For His loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. 
And so whatever you want to think about what Christianity is, what you, we do know is that its aims are global. It's God's aim to see people from every tongue and tribe and nation come to know him and delight in him. Uh, you can see on the screen Isaiah 49, verse 5 and 6. This is the father talking to the son. Now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. Verse 6. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Acts chapter 1, what does Jesus tell the disciples? You will be my disciples in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28. This is the cause of God in the universe, that one day billions of sinners would come to know him through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And that is the cause that all of you are invited to participate in today. That you would lay down your life for something, devote your life to some cause, and you have all sorts of causes that, that call for your attention all the time, that call for your time, that call for your resources, that call for your tweets, uh, that call for your posts, but this is the great cause that you could build your life towards. If you want to understand like what's been happening in the last year, as we thought a year ago about riots and marching and anger, there's a lot of things going on, but one of them is clear. People are looking for something to make their life about. And we have the message that you can actually make your life about and have hope. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at Romans chapter 1. You could turn there now if you haven't already. Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to be. And I want us to think about Romans 1 today in light of this great cause. In light of this great message, the gospel of Jesus Christ as the cause we devote our life to, namely the spread of that gospel to all peoples for the glory of God. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 1, and we'll read verses 8 to 17. Paul writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, God is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that, I, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from, from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. 
This is God's very word. Let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you for this morning. I pray for these students now as we look at your word that you would draw our attention to you and what you would have for us. Lord, you've spoken to us and help us to deal rightly with the God who speaks. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we want to finish up the introduction to this letter. If you're new, the book of Romans is not just a random theology book that got slapped into the Bible. It was a letter. It was a letter from Paul to a specific church, the church that's in Rome. And last week, we read the first seven verses. We learned a lot about the gospel, which is on Paul's mind as he walks, as he's going to go through this letter. We learned that it's from God. We learned that the gospel is about Jesus. We learned it's for you. It's for sinners. It's for all people. And this morning, it's a really simple outline as we're just, again, kind of diving in and understanding what this is about. Next week, Ben is going to take us from 18 to 32, looking at the, the beginning of Paul's argument in this letter. But here's what I want us to look at this morning. We're just going to look at, very simply, the audience, that is, who is Paul writing to. We'll look at the author. We'll think about Paul and what it is that he's trying to accomplish. And then finally, we'll see the main message. And here's what I want you to do with this morning. I just want you to ask the question... What are the things in my life that drive me? What are my priorities? What are the things that get me up in the morning? How do I make my decisions? What really is my purpose in life? And my hope is that if you know Christ and have trusted in Him, that your life's purpose, a huge part of that, would be to help others come to know Jesus Christ, to be reconciled to God through Christ. If you want to give this a title, you can call it Gospel Priorities. It's having priorities shaped by the message of the gospel. That message that God sent his son Jesus to die for sinners and raise from the dead, uh, that message is the message that should shape all of our lives and the priorities that we hold to. So three points. Let's number one, look at the audience. Let's look at the audience. Who is this letter to? And we know from verse 7, this is to all who are beloved of God in Rome. This is to the church that is at Rome. We learn a little bit more about this audience, about who is Paul writing to. If you look at verse 13, Paul is saying, I do not want you to be unaware. I've really wanted to come to you. I've been prevented so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. In fact, verse 14 says, I'm under obligation to preach to all sorts of Gentiles, Greek or barbarian, wise or fool. And so I'm eager to preach to you also who are in Rome, verse 15. And from that, we, we can deduce that though the church is probably mixed, you probably have some Jews and Gentiles, that is Jews and non-Jews, uh, it's predominantly Gentiles. Uh, we'll see as the book goes on that there's, there seems to be some issues in regards to the difference in the way that these believers maybe viewed each other. But the main idea here, the main audience, is these believers who had never really heard of the God of Israel, who probably were polytheists, probably before coming to know Christ, and now they've trusted in Jesus as the only true God. Now in verse 8, here's what we learn about them. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, why is that? Well, Paul is thinking that their faith is being proclaimed throughout the world. What is that talking about? Is that saying that they themselves are going to every corner of the world and preaching? Not necessarily. Is this saying that every single person in the world has heard about the, the church in Rome? It's not what it's saying. It is hyperbole. 
But what is, what is Paul getting at here? He's saying everybody has heard about these Christians who live in Rome. And Paul thanks God for that. He's thanking God that throughout the world, people know about these believers that live in Rome. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, if you want to understand that, you need to understand Rome. You need to understand this city. See, at this time, the Roman Empire wasn't just a, uh, a big boss on the block. They basically ruled the world. They were the empire. Now, they influenced all of, uh, all of prominent culture. They ruled. This is not some podunk city in the middle of nowhere. Any of you live in a podunk city in the middle of nowhere? Maybe. You, know, you can admit it later. It's okay. Uh, this isn't even like a mid-major sort of city. This isn't even like San Diego. This is the city. Rome is at the very heart of the capital. Now, the Roman Empire ruled most of the world at this point, and Rome was the epicenter of all that happened. That's why the expression, all roads lead to Rome, was very much true. Like everything kind of flowed into Rome, everything flowed out of Rome. And at this time, there are about a million people that live in Rome. And so in one sense, Paul's thankful. Why? Because the most populous city of the empire, the most populous city that, that affects everything else, has Christians there. Has people that believe the message of the gospel, that is the power of salvation. But that's not the only thing. The other thing you need to know about Rome is Rome had everything. R- Rome had everything. I mean, think of what makes a big city a big city. I mean, think of for the, some of you, you know, high school kids, we like to complain about our hometown. So some of you are like, I live in Santa Clarita, and it's so lame. We don't have any cool restaurants here. When I grew up, I grew up in Murrieta, and I was like, it's so lame. It's because it was, and that's okay. But right, you think about, but like, but why? Where would you rather live? You want to live in a city with stuff and things to do and things to go look at. Well, Rome has that. If you want entertainment, go watch some gladiator games. Go to the theater; they have it in Rome. You want you work on your fitness? They have outdoor gymnasiums in Rome. If you want food, they have restaurants. If you've got spiritual endeavors, temples of every kind of God anywhere you'd look. If you have political ambitions, Rome was the place to go. If you want to join the army, military strength, Rome had it. Architecture, Rome had it, still has it today. Shopping, you could go to Rome. They have everything in that city. And at the same time, it's a place that's just morally abhorrent. Uh, total rebellion. If you want to find a place to find all sorts of drinking parties, you'll find it in Rome. It's built into the holiday calendar. If you want to enjoy pagan idolatry and worship whatever sorts of gods you can, you'll find those in Rome as well. Every sort of sexual sin imaginable, heterosexual, homosexual, all sorts of issues, you'll find it in Rome as well. One quote says this, uh, you would find it in Rome. This is a common kind of graffiti. It says, Baths, wine, and lovemaking destroy our bodies. Yet lovemaking, wine, and baths make life worth living. That's the mindset. I don't think they're talking about baths. They're like, you guys should all be hygienic. Anyway, we'll talk about something else later. Right? What is that saying? It's just, you know what? Life is awful, but party it up. It's all going to make our life difficult, but let's just enjoy as much pleasure as we can while we're here. That's the mindset of the city uh, that is influencing the rest of the empire. And yet, even here in Rome, 
You have people who've trusted in Jesus Christ. Even in, at the very seat of rebellion, you have those who have heard about this carpenter from Nazareth who claimed to be God, who died for sin and rose again, who claims to be the only God that all the other gods of all the other temples are face and false and lead you to nowhere. And people have trusted in Christ. We have believers We have believers here in the the midst of worldliness. We have believers here in the midst of such prominence. And it has become known throughout the world that this little religion of Jesus and death on a cross has not only taken a foothold in the empire, but some of his disciples live in the very capital. And that's why Paul thanks God. He's thankful, what does it say again, verse 8, that your faith, your trust in Jesus is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And why does Paul thank God for this? Well, take a look at verse 5. Again, verse 5, Paul says, Through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. In other words, Paul rejoices. Why? Because, well, because those things we read about from the Old Testament, about God wanting his, his name to be known throughout the world, and that people from every tribe and tongue would know him and worship him, God wants that to happen. It's being done right here in Rome. Even in Rome, it's happening. People are coming to know the one true God. And that is good news, friends. And then that Paul rejoices. There's a lesson in that for us as well. I I do think there's a lesson for us about do we praise God for the faith of others? But we'll talk about more on that in just a second. So that's number one, the audience. Let's look at number two, the author. The author, and the author is Paul. We know that from verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul. Now, we could talk a lot about Paul. uh, Some of you have grown up in church. You know about him. Paul was a former persecutor of the church. Uh, He was a religious leader amongst the Jews. Jesus met him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, and Paul was converted. He repented of his sin. It says things like scales fell from his eyes. He trusted in Jesus and became this incredible example of boldness for the sake of the gospel where he's constantly traveling and constantly preaching and without rest, proclaiming the message of Christ in him crucified. He's the writer of much of our New Testament. But what do we notice from Paul here in this passage? In this text, what do we notice from Paul as he's just writing and kind of explaining why he's writing to them? Well, you do see a couple of things. You see the way he loves saints. You see the way he loves the church. And then you see the way he loves sinners, the way he has a heart for the lost. Look at this with me, verse 8. He says, first, first, in, in, that, uh, in the text there, it's, it's emphatic. He says, to begin with, let me, let me make this very clear. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. And the idea there of thanking is consistently. That is, Paul is constantly going before God in prayer, thanking God for the faith of the believers in Rome. Praising God for that, thanking him for that. Verse 9 and 10, we see that he's consistently praying. He says, For God is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers. He's praying for them, and he's praying specifically that he might be able to come visit them. But these believers are on his heart. He prays for them. Which I think, on the one hand, you always want to be careful of how much you take the heroes of the Bible and say, like, you should be like them. 
Because that's not what the Bible swore. And yet at the same time, here's a sinner who so loves Jesus Christ, has been transformed by him, that his prayers are often about the faith of others. They're consistently about the spiritual strengthening and encouragement of other Christians. Very rarely do I, do I think Paul prayed for grades or traveling mercies. I think he's praying for spiritual health because he cares and loves those people. I think that's a good lesson for us about how we ought to pray as well. Looking at verse 11, let's keep thinking about Paul and his love for these believers. Verse 11, he says, For I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. He goes, I want to visit you. In fact, verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you, but I've been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. What's Paul doing here? Why is he saying all of this? Well, in the early church, what you find is some division. It's addressed in Ephesians. Pastor John has talked about it. Between Jews and Gentiles. You know, John chapter 4, Jesus says salvation is from the Jews. The New Testament is not a new book. It's a continuation of the Old Testament. So in one sense, real biblical Christianity is a Jewish religion. So you can imagine that the way that would have affected the way that Jews looked at Gentiles, and Gentiles felt about Jews. There's some division. Now, in the midst of that, here's what's happening. Paul has not come to Rome. So we know he's not a, he did not plant the church at Rome. He's not been there. Why then is he making such a big deal? Like, I want to go there. I want you to know. He doubles down. I've really wanted to be there. Why does he do that? Well, perhaps what's happened is that they have begun to think Maybe the reason Paul hasn't visited us is because we're somehow second-class believers. In fact, this whole letter, we're going to see chapters 2 and 3, there's no difference in the sinfulness between Jew and Gentile. Uh, In chapter 9, 10, 11, we'll see uh, that the, the Gentiles have been grafted in, and yet God still has a purpose for the people of Israel. And so we see this you know, Paul trying to level out the Jews and the Gentiles in the midst of that, he wants to tell you, Hey, I have really wanted to be there. My my absence hasn't been on purpose. My absence hasn't been because I'm against you. I want you to know I've wanted to come. And so he writes them, he lets them know I've intended to come to you. In fact, I'm praying now that I'd be able to soon come to you. And what does he want to do when he comes? Look at this verse 11. He says this, he says, for I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that you may be strengthened. That is, verse 12, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. He goes, I want to come to spend time with you believers who are in Rome so that I might encourage you in the faith and that you might encourage me in the faith lest you think that I don't need any encouragement. I want to come that we might mutually build one another up. And and how would they do that? They would mutually build one another up, verse 12, each of us by the other's faith. So I want you to see my faith so you might grow. And I want to see your faith so that I might grow and be encouraged. Now, here's what I want you to notice before we go to Paul's heart for sinners. Notice the faith-strengthening effect of faith. Notice the way that faith strengthens faith. 
Students, one of the things you need most, and when we say faith, that that might be a religious word, it's kind of undefined. When we say faith, we mean trust. We mean steadfast trust and devotion to Jesus. Talked about the last week. It's not just, I believe in Jesus. Faith is, I entrust my life to Jesus. And one of the ways that you strengthen in the way that you entrust your life to Jesus is by seeing the faith of others. So before we, before we go into what the rest of the sermon is, is a sermon about evangelism, because I think this text is about it. It's just interesting, like, for us as believers, how much you need other believers. And, and how much other believers, if you're a Christian, need you. Because faith strengthens faith. Your steadfastness to Jesus on your campus encourages others to be devoted to Jesus on your campus. Your stalwart faith in the midst of trials helps others trust Jesus in the midst of trials. Your real faith in a youth ministry helps others say, oh, I should act like a real Christian in youth ministry. It's so interesting that as Christians, we weren't saved to be alone. There's no Lone Ranger Christians, but we need others and others need us. I would just ask you, student, who is helping strengthen your faith? Who are you looking to? Who are other believers that are helping you see, like, oh, that's what devotion to Jesus looks like? And secondly, I would just ask, are you living in a way that you're helping strengthen the faith of others? Uh, Look, life change comes through the word. We'll see in Romans 10, faith comes through hearing, right? Right? And yet, so much can be undone by bad testimony. At the same time, so much can be reinforced by really living for Christ. I I just think a good question for your peer group, the next time you're hanging out, or the next time you're up at like 2 in the morning, all texting each other, or whatever app you decide to use to message that. Like, how much would it benefit if someone just awkwardly asked, like, hey, what do you guys think? Do you think we help each other live more for Jesus? Or do you think we help each other live less for Christ? Do you think we help each other in holiness or help each other tolerate sin? Do you think our group does a better job of showing what Christ is like or people people wouldn't really be able to tell the difference between us and our non-Christian friend group as well? Sorry to meddle. Just a thought. And you could text that out and make that awkward on a Friday night. And yet it'd be so good because we see the faith-strengthening effect of faith. You need others and others need you. If you want to help your friends not cross a line in purity that they'll regret for their life, that starts with conversation now and the way that you interact on social media. If you want to help your friends be bold when they're on their own in the classroom, it just starts in the way you live holy now. There's so much that comes the way your peers help one another. And you don't have to play this game where you go like, we're high school kids, so we have a high school kid level of faith. I just don't think the Bible has that category. Faith and disbelief are the two. How are you helping your group walk in faith and not unbelief? That's Paul's love for them. He wants to be encouraged by them. He wants them to be encouraged by him. And he is so thankful that these are steadfast believers in a, in a city of sin. But what also shines forth so clear from the author in this passage is his love for sinners. His desire to proclaim the gospel. 
He says, I want to see fruit among you. I want to see fruit among this city in verse 13. And he says then, let's take a look here. He says, that I may obtain some fruit among you also at the end of verse 13, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I want to see some fruit. I want to see change. I want to see faith and belief in Christ among the Gentiles. And then he launches verse 14 into his heart. And he says, you see, I am under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish. And so for my part, I am eager, I am zealous. You could say, I am pumped and ready to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And Paul makes it very clear. Here's why I want to come to Rome. Here's why I'm coming. I'm coming to preach the good news. I'm coming to preach the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I want to preach it to believers in the city so they might be encouraged. I want to preach it to unbelievers so they might come to know Christ. He wants to preach it in Rome so there be fruit for the glory of God. This really is, friends, the passion of Paul's life. This is what he's built his life around. This is why he does what he does. And you see it, that at all costs, no matter what it takes, that non-Christians would hear the gospel. Take a look at the word. This is Philippians 1. Paul is in jail. And he's in jail. And there's other preachers who are like doing their own preaching show. And trying to make Paul jealous while in jail. And I think I have this. Philippians 1.18. Do I have this one on the screen? Yeah, here we go. He says, they're like, Paul, aren't you sad? They're in jail. He goes, no, who cares? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. I don't care what happens. Lock me up and throw away the key. As long as it leads to the expansion of the gospel. As long as the good news continues to go out i'm good that is what my life is about in fact let's look a little further because you can see a little uh, more clarity on the purpose of this letter go to romans 15 hold your spot in romans 1 but go to romans 15 because paul is going to tell them at the end exactly why uh, he's coming this is one of those where Paul's going to say, like, I really want to see you. And then he's going to, he's going to write to them about the gospel. He's going to talk to them about how they live. And then at the back end of the book, Romans 15, he, he tells them about why he's really coming, the main purpose. He says this, verse 20 of Romans 15. He says, thus I aspired. Here it is. Here's his aspirations. You can think about your aspirations in life, whether they be athletic, financial, relational. Here's his, here's his goal. Ready? Thus, I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation, but that is, as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. He says, my ambition is that those who've never heard of Jesus would hear the gospel and hear of Christ and come to trust in him. He says, for this reason, verse 22, I've been prevented from coming to you. Right? I've been able to come to you yet because I've been preaching the gospel at so many places that have not heard about Jesus. And though I've loved to come to you, you've already heard the gospel. So I've been delayed. I've delayed. Verse 23, but now with no further place for me in these regions... Since I have for many years a longing to come see you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way by there by you, where I first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. In other words, here's what Paul's saying. I'm going to go to Jerusalem to help the poor saints there, and then I want to go to Spain. Because people in Spain have not heard the gospel. People in Spain have not heard about Jesus Christ. And when I come through, I want you to help me with it. 
I want you to be a part. I want you to, to support me. I'm going to ask for your prayers. I'm going to ask for your money. I'm going to ask for your support so that when I go to Spain, I can go preach the gospel there as well. That's what Paul is passionate about. Now again, I always want to be careful of reading the Bible primarily to find human examples. There's a lot of danger that can come from just saying the primary thing I look for is human examples. And yet Paul does say in Philippians 3, join in following my example. And he says in 1 Corinthians level 1, follow me as I follow Christ. And here, what I think Paul is doing is this. He is explaining to the church at Rome his zeal for the gospel so that they might have the same passion and they would partner with him. I think he's saying this not just to flex and not just to have a word count for his paper. He's saying this because he wants them to see his heart and have the same heart and say, yes, I love the gospel. We want to absolutely be part of you getting the gospel to those who've never heard it before. If you want to understand Paul's heart, there's three I am statements. We heard these a couple of months ago when Steve Lawson preached on this out on the Grace Walk. Verse 14, what does he say? Listen to Paul's evangelistic heart. He says, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And so why does Paul preach? Well, first he says he has an obligation. It's his duty. The word there for obligation is debt. I have a debt to preach the gospel. There's something I owe. Now, when you think of debt, John, famous pastor named John Stott has, a, has an illustration. There's two kinds of ways to have debt. Uh, person A can give you money and you owe them $1,000, right? They gave you 1000 bucks, you owe them 1000 bucks to pay them back. The other option is that person A gives you $1,000 and they want you to give that money to person B. They want you to keep it safe and pass it on to them. In that case, you're a debtor to both people, both the person that gave you the money and the person you're going to give it to. And what Stott does, he says it's the second one. That's the sort of debt here. Here's what Paul's saying. I have an obligation. I'm a debtor to all Gentiles to get the gospel to them. I'm obligated to do this. And I don't care who they are. I don't care if they're Greeks or barbarians. That's sort of high class or low class. That, that would have been an ethnic group, Greeks, that's really respected. Barbarians is, is sort of the, the random tribes, not as respected. I don't care who they are. They're all souls that need the gospel. I don't care if they're the wise or the foolish, verse 14 says. I don't care if they're the smartest of the group or uh, not the smartest of the group. They're from well-to-do schools or from no school. My job is to get them the gospel. And I have not just... Uh, uh, a, uh, the opportunity, I have a duty to do such things. That's Paul's heart. He also says in verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel. So I'm under obligation to do it, but I'm also eager. I want to get out there and preach. It's what I want to do. That, that proclaiming the good news of Jesus dying for sinners is not a burden that's been placed upon him something he wants, that he's zealous, he's looking forward to. It's not a quota that he has to fulfill. It's not like some of you who work out five days a week, but you hate the gym. You're like, this stinks, but I got to do it for my team or my, my low metabolism or whatever it is. Uh, that's not what this is. This is zeal. He wants to do this. 
And last, even on top of that, verse 16, he he not only says, I am obligated, I am eager, but he also says, I'm unashamed. I am unashamed, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, there's plenty of reason Paul could have been ashamed. This religion seems crazy. You're telling me that there's not multiple gods, there's only one God? You're telling me that this God actually died on a cross and rose again? You're telling me he's the only way? Um, You're telling me you're going to deny yourself of all the pleasures and joys of the world for this God you've never even met before? That seems strange. Where's, Where's his temple? There's not really a temple for this God? Right? There's, there's plenty of reasons to be embarrassed. There's plenty of reasons to be ashamed. And yet what we find is Paul says, I am obligated, I am eager, and I am unashamed. And I think the very simple question is this morning, is do those fit you? Are those realities true of you when it comes to sharing the gospel? There's so many things that we feel obligated to do. There's so many things in your life that you're eager about. There's so many things that you talk about and share about and, uh, you know, events or relationships or whatever that you're unashamed in telling others about. But are those things true of you when it comes to the gospel? Do you feel obligated to share the gospel? Are you eager to share it? Are you unashamed? As Christians... We ought to feel a weight that we need to share this. Matthew 28, Paul calls the church to go and make disciples. It's about obedience to the Lord. There's also an obligation that just comes from seeing all these people are going to perish forever. And I have the only good news that could save them. I mean, say what you want about like making fun of the vaccine. At least those people think it's going to kill you. And then they share it. It'd be really weird if they totally were convinced that the the, the virus would kill you and then didn't share the vaccine. Yet even stranger still to think that your sin would murder you and yet you don't share the good news that could rescue you. Do you feel obligated? Are you eager to share it? I think often we're not eager to share it because we're afraid of what it would cost us. Uh, We're not eager to share it because we don't want to offend people. And I think we're not eager to share share it ultimately because we're ashamed. We're embarrassed of what this will mean for us socially. Uh, If we were to share the gospel on our campus, if we were to share the gospel at our Christian campus and and call self-righteous people trusting in their last name to save them, we would be embarrassed. If we were to share the gospel with the unsaved person in our small group, we'd be embarrassed about the way they talk about us in in text groups. If we were to share the gospel with unsaved co-workers and unsaved family, we think about what that would do for us, how weird it would make things for us. But Paul says that he is obligated, it is his duty. He is eager to do it, and he is not ashamed. Why? How did he get there? He feels those ways because of what the gospel is. It's not because Paul gave himself some pep talk. It's because of the nature of the gospel. Let's go to number three, the message. Let's think about the message. It's because of the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for or because it is the power of God for salvation 
to everyone who believes, the Jew first and the Greek second. For, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now tune in here. If you want to understand the thesis statement of Romans, some of you have to write like a thesis statement or a purpose statement for essays you write. The, the thesis for Romans is chapter 17. Or sorry, verse 17. The thesis is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. So if you want to know what 118 all the way to chapter 11 is about, that we'll look at this, the rest of the semester, it's about Romans 117, the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. But in these verses, I'll give them to you quickly. We find why we should not be ashamed of the gospel, why you should be eager to share the gospel, why you should feel obligation, and why you should build your life around proclaiming the gospel. And I'm not just saying that I want all of you to become street preachers as a result of this. I'm talking about showing up to youth 15 minutes early to pray with your friends for non-believers. I'm talking about how can we get this person to come to Wednesday night and Sunday morning kind of strategizing. I'm talking about the, the boldness that just asks questions. Talking about what you believe. Well, is it cool if you've shared that? Is it cool if I talk to you about what I believe? I'm talking about the boldness, to, not just the boldness, but the prioritizing of saying, man, I never want to show up on a Wednesday without an unsafe friend with me. I'm talking about that kind of building your life around it. It comes from understanding four things about the gospel. The first is this. It's understanding the power of the gospel. Because I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. That in it we see the power of God to save. You might think, it is going to be very hard. Josh, you don't understand my friends. Some of them are the most self-righteous people I've ever seen. I've never seen a group sing so loudly at our chapel at school and say such horrible things at the lunch table about one another. You're thinking, how can I share the gospel with them? They'll never change. It's going to be very difficult to preach to these, these Christianese kids. And the answer, I would say, is you're right. It is not, it's going to be hard. In fact, it's going to be more than hard. It's impossible, which is why the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That it's the message that changes hearts. We're not talking about changing minds. I'm not talking about convincing people intellectually. I'm not talking about getting your coworker to say, well, I guess Jesus could have existed. I'm talking about the, the heart-changing power of the gospel that takes a dead person and gives them life. That, that changes them from the inside out. Some of us are not very eager because we think the, the, the task is impossible. What's the point? They're never going to change. One that's not up to you if your master has told you to speak. And of course they're never going to change by your words. But they can change by the gospel. Because that's who God is. We'll get to chapter 10. Faith comes by hearing. It's the message that's powerful. And if you doubt that the gospel can save, then no wonder you doubt your own salvation, friends. It's that very message you believed that saved a sinner like you, that saved a self-righteous sinner like you. That's the same message that could change their hearts also. It's powerful. And so we should be eager. We should want to share. The second thing you see about the gospel is you see its scope, its range. 
So Paul already said, I want to preach to everybody, Greeks, barbarians, wise, foolish. And here he says, it's the power of salvation, verse 16, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, when he says to the Jew first and also the Greek, what, what he's saying is that the message of the gospel came through the Jews first. That's what it is. You'll find it in the Old Testament. God had a group of people called the Hebrew people. And remember we talked about last week, the gospel is on a New Testament invention. It comes from God. It's in the Old Testament. But we see it realized in Jesus Christ, and it's for everyone. That is, anyone can get saved. It has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has nothing to do with, well, what degree of a sinner they are. Well, you know, I'm more likely to share with my Mormon friends because they're nicer and they're not allowed to say things that some of my other friends can say. And so I'll kind of go to them, but less to them. No way. That's not it. It's to everyone who believes. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's it. It's, it's any, any person. In fact, even today, even today, if you committed sin this week that you would be embarrassed if anybody knew about your parents your leader even today if you were to trust in christ you would be absolutely forgiven of your sin he would give you a new heart and he would secure your eternity for the future if you knew a ton of your bible if you knew none of your bible even today you can come to know christ and enjoy all the full blessings of salvation it's to anyone who believes. And so, I don't need to be embarrassed about the gospel. Because any of these people can get saved. All of these people need to get saved. Especially as we'll see that unfold next week. Second, or third, I want you to see the message of the gospel. What is at the, at the very heart of the message of the gospel? Verse 17 says, For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So what are we going to be learning about as we look at Romans 1 all the way to 11? What we're going to learn about is the righteousness of God. Now what does that mean? You could read a bunch of commentaries on Romans and find pages and pages of debate. I'll, I'll, I'll synthesize and help you guys out a little bit. God is righteous. God is holy. But when it says the righteousness of God... What's that saying is the, the righteousness that comes from God. See, what you need most in regards to your relationship with God is for him to look at you and say, that person is righteous. Now, we don't use that word righteous a ton unless you're talking about like surf, I guess. But when we say righteous, what that means is that person is perfect. They're good. Their standing before me is faultless. In fact, it's not just that they haven't committed sin. It's that they've only done good. Everything they've done is not just neutral. It's good. That's the righteousness that you and I need. We need God who sees all of our life, who knows all of our thoughts, who knows all of our imaginations, who knows all of our desires. We need that God to look at every action, thought, and ambition of our heart and say, right, good. Not just that they haven't done bad, but they've always done good. That's what we need. Friends, wouldn't that be good to know that the God of the universe looks upon you and says, right, accepted, 
embraced and affirmed. That's the message of the gospel. That's what's offered in the gospel. Knowing that this God who runs all of history will embrace you and welcome you into his kingdom forever. Not reluctantly, but willing, willingly affirming all of who you are. Isn't that funny how much of us, uh, or sorry, isn't it funny how much our friends know about us? And at the same time, how little they know about us? How much of our social media is manicured? How much of our wardrobe, even on Sunday mornings, is, is decided through the filter of what will my friends think about this? How much of the way we act is controlled about, well, what do I want them to know about me? What do I want to hide? What, what, what strengths do I want to highlight? And what blemishes do I want to conceal? The gospel is that the God who knows all of that, no matter how you try to hide it, the gospel is the God that knows all of your greatest faults, still says, right and accepted and embraced and beloved. How? How? Well, well fourth, last, we'll, we'll call it the, the means. The means, you could call it the axis as well. So we've seen the power of the gospel, uh, that's the power of God for salvation, the scope of the gospel, any person, the message, the righteousness of God. Well, how? How it comes by faith. It says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written in Habakkuk 2, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Revealed from faith to faith, what do we do with that expression, from faith to faith? What that's saying is this, it's, it's, it's just emphatic. It's saying it's always by faith. It's by faith to faith. Always by faith. It's like your, your coach uh, says, tomorrow morning, we're going to run. And then when you come to practice Tuesday, we're going to run. And when you come to practice Wednesday, you're going to run. And I don't know what we'll do in the weeks ahead, but I know what this team's going to do. What are we going to do? And you all go, we're going to run. And you're like, ah, death. Why did I sign up for this? It's because it's cross country. That's all you do. But anyway... <laughs> When he says from faith to faith, it's Paul's way of saying that righteousness comes from faith. That is to say, it doesn't come from works. It doesn't come from from effort. It, It doesn't come from you making yourself righteous before God. But it always is and always will be from faith in God. That is trusting in God. Coming to him empty handed and believing on the promises of Jesus. That whoever turns to him will have their sins forgiven. And friends, that is good news, right? That's why anyone can be saved. Because anyone can put faith in Christ. Anyone can abandon themselves, deny their old self, own who they are as a sinner and say, Christ, I'm coming to you and trusting my life to you. And if you do that, you'll be saved. And if they do that, they'll be saved. So in one sense, we don't need to be ashamed. Why? Because God has accepted me. Who cares what you people say about me? And on the other hand, we could be eager because the only thing keeping that person from eternal wrath is faith in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why Paul has built his life around this cause. That's why we should build our life around this cause. So, you know, I would just ask you, what are you doing for the sake of the loss and the proclamation of the gospel? What effort are you putting into it? What prayers are you pouring out towards it? This is what God has called us to do. And what a great cause. 
Because here's the last thing that I'll share. I, I remember when I was in elementary school, we used to, every Christmas, the school wanted, or every like October, the school wanted us to go door to door to sell candy and wrapping paper. Does anyone in school still do this? You do like the, the you, you sell like candy and wrapping paper from a catalog. Yeah. And uh, it was the dumbest thing. <laughs> Overpriced wrapping paper. $30 for a box of six pieces of candy. I'm like, well, if you sell enough, we'll take you to Magic Mountain. I'm like, my mom could buy me six annual passes for Magic Mountain for the price of one of these boxes of chocolate. Signed up to be part of something that we really didn't want to be part of. Friends, the gospel is not something you're signed up to share that you shouldn't want to be part of. In fact, it's a message that you shouldn't even, well, shouldn't even be true for you. We share a gospel we don't deserve. We are sinners who have been rescued. And now we could tell other sinners where to find safety in Christ. Let's have the same zeal that Paul calls the Romans to. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for your son who saved us. Lord, I I pray for our group that this would be a priority for us. Lord, that we would use text messages and social media and the power of our group of friends, our money, our time, our, our creative abilities, Whatever sort of prominence we have, Lord, I pray that we'd use every resource you've given us, not for ourselves, but so that more people would come to know you, to be rescued from hell, and to praise you forever. Lord, from Pastor John's sermon this morning, we know hell is a reality. There are countless people around us, countless relatives and friends who will be separate from you forever. And yet we have that one message. And the only thing keeping them from you is faith in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that from our group, many would come to know you. And that through our bold witness, we'd see sinners transformed, become worshipers of you. Pray all these things for your glory. Amen.